The following is a presentation of the Retro Network. Sequel Quest, episode 125. A sequel to Surf Ninjas. Welcome to Sequel Quest, the podcast where Adam, Jeff, and Jeremy invite you on a cinematic journey to create prequels, sequels, and reboots to your favorite movie franchises. Joined by special guests along the way. Sequel Quest is go for long, so let the adventure begin now. Quansu, dudes! Welcome to this fully styling episode of Sequel Quest. We're moto-surfing your way tonight with some gnarly 90s comedy fun in the sun. So let me introduce you to our crew that's primed for awesome adventure tonight. First up, the man in an eye patch that's thoroughly convinced that money can't buy knives. It's Jeff. Ahoy hoy! Next, in the tradition of Gumbe, as in Poke's friend, we're gonna start pronouncing his name Jeremy. It's Jeremy. Hi. And applying another coat of wax to the old man-to-wave, friction-reducing vehicle, I'm Adam. And joining us tonight are two very special guests from the Schumacast and Greystoked podcasts, swallowing his handcuff key because it's Tuesday, and he swallows it every Tuesday. Surf's up, Noel Thingval. I've got a very toughly calloused rectum now. <laughs> That'll do it to you. And fresh from the beach, with a game gear in his hand, the great seer of the Patusan royal family. He still can't find Spain on the map, but that's okay, because all he wants to do is drive. We're stoked to have joining us for this episode of Sequel Quest, none other than Nick Cowan, a.k.a. Adam, from Surf Ninjas! Welcome! Hey there, guys. Thanks for having me. You know, we've been communicating back and forth on Twitter. You're always very open to the fans, that want to get a little information, so it's wild to have you with us tonight. I personally am a huge fan. I can't speak for my co-host, but I'll go out on a limb and say we would not be doing this movie if you weren't joining us. So thank you, Nick, so much for being here. Absolutely. We will definitely have a few questions for you regarding your experience at making the film, but first, we want to find out what everyone's initial experience with viewing Surf Ninjas was. Now, Noel, we usually only have one guest per episode, but you you kind of pushed us on Twitter to get this on the schedule and make it happen and then wanted to join us. So why was that? Well, I actually just started listening to the archives of your series and I'm just like, hey, that's a fun show and I have ideas. And I'm sure Michael can back you up that I'm quite known on Greystoke for just pitching wild sequel concepts. (laughs) Yes, indeed. So tell me a little bit here, Noel, about your experience with Surf Ninjas. I did not see it in theaters like most people. I saw it probably 94, 95, shortly after it came out on video, and I just adored it. Like, seriously, from 90s on, it has been one of my absolute favorite go-to comfort food movies. It is just so delightful and silly and exactly my type of humor. And I I own the novelization. I own a copy of the screenplay. It is just one of those wonderful little fun, silly, bizarro movies that I can see why a lot of people don't click with it, but it's exactly my kind of jam. That is fantastic. Now, maybe on the other side of the spectrum here, Jeff, when did you first watch Surf Ninjas? About 45 minutes ago. (laughs) So... I, I, I'm very fresh on this. I have 
Honestly, up until about an hour, well, about two hours ago, I kind of thought we were doing three ninjas. So I'm glad that I looked at my information and saw that we were talking about surf ninjas. And I do remember the difference. But yeah, I have obviously only 45 minutes of background with this this film. <laughs> and we, we have had that experience in the past where we were doing Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead and somebody wanted to watch Adventures in Babysitting. It happens. Sadly, unlike, unlike Three Ninjas, this one did not get five direct-to-video sequels. <laughs> right. <laughs> and we're going to correct that tonight, you know? Now, I'm curious for you, Jeremy, where does Surf Ninjas fall on your radar? Um, I've known about the movie. I don't remember seeing it. And just like Jeff, it was about an hour ago when I saw it. See, this is good. Fresh first-time perspectives. Now, on my side of things, I saw a movie poster during the summer of 1993 while I was visiting family in New Jersey. We had gone to see another movie, and then I saw the Surf Ninjas, and I was like, what is this? And I wasn't in a position to influence the family itinerary at 11 years old, so I had to wait for the rental opportunity at Blockbuster Video when I got back to California, which I did immediately. Immediately loved it, much like Noel. Uh, I eventually got to buy the rental copy that I was renting as a previously viewed tape and bring the VHS home and then, yeah, just watched it endlessly. It's just been one of those movies that every little bit of it is just so funny and it has so much heart to it. And we'll we'll get into that, I'm sure, as we talk about what really makes it special. But yeah, I, I you know, if I'm going to list uh, what I've been able to grab, uh, also a copy of the novelization, so I'm right there with Noel. You know, I've had it on VHS, had it on DVD, still waiting for that Blu-ray. Nick, I know you tried to get a, uh, a petition going for that, so hopefully soon enough they respond. Yeah. Criterion, come on. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, also, I was able to pick up recently a Surf Ninjas press kit. So I'll be sharing a little bit from that throughout the episode here. But now, Nick, here's the question. How did Surf Ninjas end up on your radar? Well, you know, I was doing the uh, kid actor thing that a lot of us kids in Los Angeles were doing, and it just was a standard audition. Got the call to go out and read some sides for a movie called Surf Ninjas of the South China Sea, which was the original working title, before it went to Surf Warriors and then back to just Surf Ninjas. <laughs> And we, we've seen that, actually. I, I shared with you uh, on Twitter a blurb from Wizard Magazine, which is a comic book magazine, yeah, announcing it as Surf Warriors at that time. I don't think it has a ring like Surf Ninjas. Not at all. Gotta capitalize on that ninja movement of the 90s, where everything was ninja this and ninja that. For sure. Now, once you got the full script, you got you know, cast in the role of Adam, were you reading the full script to get the full story? Did it interest you? Oh, totally. I mean, you know, I was 11 years old, so this was right up my alley, you know. A lot of us, obviously, were Ninja Turtles fans, and when I knew that uh, Ernie Reyes Jr. was involved, I was just like, this is gonna be great. <laughs> you know what I mean? And then when I found out I had to to go to like thailand yeah i was pretty stoked for those out there listening like jeff and jeremy who had not seen the movie before pushing play on this podcast jeremy tell them what it's all about it is the brothers johnny and adam are coasting through a fun surfer existence in la when they are suddenly accosted by a band of ninjas 
A mysterious eye-patch-wearing warrior comes to their aid, telling the brothers that they are royal heirs to the throne of Patusan, an embattled island under the rule of a tyrannical leader, Colonel Chi. After their father is kidnapped, Johnny and Adam agree to travel to Patusan to save their dad and overthrow Colonel Chi by leading a revolution as surf ninjas. All right, so uh, now, Nick, we're going to put you on the hot seat here, which sounds like a torture device in Colonel Chi's dungeon. Manchu would be in charge of that. But really, we just want to know about your memories of playing an actual Surf Ninja. So just as the point of reference for how it was developed, New Line Cinema created the movie 100% as a vehicle for Ernie Reyes Jr. after he had done such a great job in The Secret of the Ooze, that Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles sequel. In fact, he was put into that movie having just been in one of the turtle costumes in the original because Golden Harvest liked him so much and they said we want to get you on screen make you a character in the film now I remember Ernie Reyes Jr. best from an obscure series called Secret Bodyguard which aired as segments on the new Mickey Mouse Club in 1989 does anybody remember this because no one ever talks about it 100% yeah I was a fan like I said I knew who Ernie was going into it so I was pretty excited to get to work with him. Oh, that's great. So, uh, for those who don't know, he was playing like a kid who competed in martial arts, basically himself, because Ernie Reyes Sr. played his dad in that series, and he was a parking tenant at a country club, gets hired by a rich guy to secretly protect his daughter while she went to public high school for the first time, you know, all sorts of fun stuff going on there. So, Nick, for you, like I said, you're, you're reading the script, and you start realizing, okay, Sega is a very big part of this production playing the game gear is essential to your role in the film were you already a gamer you know i had a game boy and i had the first nes i've never really been much of a gamer then or now but i i I did come to the auditions with my game boy just to kind of help sell you know that i could be that kid and i think it even said game boy in the script at the time i knew that uh sega was funding this so i'm not sure why Game Gear wasn't prominently featured in the first draft, but maybe that maybe it was a secret. Maybe it wasn't a new thing. Who knows? Yeah, and the uh, the producer there uh, was it Evzen Kolar. Is that how you say his name, Nick? As far as I can remember, yeah. I, uh... <laughs> It's an interesting name, yeah. It really was, yeah. And he said that they originally were going to use a Game Boy, but because it wasn't color and it would be hard to film, that's when they started getting Sega involved and all of that. So it says here, uh, in the press release that Sega included in the press kit, they say here, the game recreates the movie's colorful world filled with ruthless villains, ancient rituals, martial arts, mystical powers, and of course, gnarly waves. Surf Ninjas even gives Game Gear a, quote, supporting action actor role in the teen movie release <laughs> wow it was your sidekick huh yeah pretty much now here's the question about the game gear though did you actually ever play it on set or was it just a prop uh yeah it was basically just a prop i think they went in and did the insert shots after we had filmed so that they could make it look like some of the shots that were actually filmed for the screen and uh, oftentimes there was a game in there, but sometimes there was not. So if you're eagle-eyed, you can see uh, shots where it's just like a dummy cartridge in the back. Oh. But uh, no real on-screen playing, unfortunately. And you did, <laughs> So you didn't have a Game Gear to play in between scenes when you were in Thailand? Oh, no, totally did. Oh, okay. In fact, uh, on our way over, we had a layover at the airport in Japan for about mm, two hours or something like that. And on my flight was the prop master. And she basically brought it over to me and said, yep, this one's yours. So sweet. I got to play uh, Game Gear 
all day long. <laughs> that is awesome. Now, just so you know, I, I don't even know if you were aware of this, but I, I found an interview with the game developer in an issue of Sega Visions magazine from 1993. And this is what they said about the actual game footage that we see in the movie. He says, we created individual cartridges for each sequence. We color tested each sequence and adjusted the carts for better visibility. Then New Line Cinema shot the game footage directly from the Game Gear system. It was not superimposed. In fact, they were so impressed with the clarity of the Game Gear footage that they actually increased the number of scenes featuring Game Gear and the amount of game footage that was originally scripted. What great exposure! (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you can tell when you look at it, it's it's shot directly off the Game Gear. Oh, yeah. Now, Nick, for you, because I know that, you know, over your life, this obviously must have been uh, something fun to look back on with friends here and there. Is there a favorite line or scene from the film that still makes you laugh? You know, there's, there's, there's two things that come to mind for me personally, as far as the absurdity and also the fun of filming. I'd have to say riding down a mountain on Tone Loke's back uh, <laughs> really takes the cake. <laughs> Because, One of my uh, favorite scenes. It yeah. was complex, too. I mean, like, we start the shot in Thailand. A large chunk of it is me and Griffith Park here in Los Angeles. And then um, back into Thailand. And some of the rigs we had, I mean, there's a shot you can tell is clearly me on actual Tone Loke's back as he's being dragged down the side of a right. mountain. <laughs> so, uh, you know, kudos to him that he went for that because he could have been like, nope. <laughs> and I might have been like, nope. But, uh no, it was awesome. He was a re- he was a really good sport. He was actually a really cool person to work with because we got to work pretty closely in that sequence and that you know that part of the film. Yeah. But the the second thing that comes to mind uh, as far as a line is right at the end when we're having kind of like the coronation celebration kind of deal, and uh, I walk up and say Kwansu dudes, and then I come back and I go, they love this word. It must mean like free beer or something. <laughs> and that was actually one of my favorite lines, and it's. Interesting that uh, if you notice, Rob Schneider's in that scene next to me, and um, th- that was his idea. The line was fully his. He uh, kind of went to the director and he said, "You know what? I think I think Nick needs a line here," and we just cut. He just kind of making them up on the spot. So he that's why he was standing next to me so that he could be like, "Okay, now say this. Okay, now say this." So we had a couple other takes where it was like, uh, "They love this word. It must mean like free peep show." Uh, you know, there's a bunch of different things we tried out because he was just on the spot kind of improving and kind of writing these lines for me right then and there. So I think that's pretty cool. Well, that's a question I have. Was there much improv on the set? And not that I was aware of. I'm guessing if there was, it was mostly Rob Schneider, you know, because he was still he was he was pretty much he was on SNL at the time. He was a, kind of at his peak with oh, yeah. SNL. Like, I want to say that a lot of what he did with the Uncle Iggy bit was just purely made up on the spot. Yeah, that one yeah. seems totally ripped from Mike Myers. Like, that's him hanging out with Mike Myers, doing impressions of his dad, and then Rob Schneider's like, I'll do that in this movie. <laughs> the lines are there. They were written for the script. Uh, and they were pretty much, I think he said what was on the page, but as far as the, uh, what appears to be almost a Hitler mustache, <laughs> the Scottish accent, yeah. the wheelchair and the, you know, that whole thing was him just going, Oh, what's in the prop truck? Oh, wheelchair. Cool. Uh, oh. what do you make up? You know, like, what can I do right now? And it was kind of on the spot. And I think, I don't think any of us knew what we were for until we saw it. And it was just like, Oh, well, there it is. Guess that's what we're going with. 
Now, just to clarify the improvisation in the press kit here, they interview Rob Schneider and it says, and he applauds Israel, the director, for keeping his eye on the comedy by encouraging the cast to improvise during filming in order to achieve a sense of spontaneity. Quote, I didn't realize it would be this much fun to improvise and find jokes in each scene, related the comedian. So, yeah, (laughs) there it was. Mostly Rob, though, like you said, it does seem to be the case. You know, as the comic relief, I think that was his really his wheelhouse, you know, because like Ernie's, you know, Ernie's whole thing was the fight choreography that he did with his father and that whole team that they brought yeah rob was the comic relief so now i'm curious noel for you what is your favorite scene in the movie what's the one you really go back to uh nick riding tom loke down a hill <laughs> um no seriously the the whole scene in the cave too where zatch just suddenly attacks johnny and johnny's just like having none of it um i love so many little bits like the whole like you know money can't buy knives sequence and, and i love whenever ernie ray as senior got to put in a joke like i love the when he pulls out the cigarette and matches and says <laughs> yeah yeah i know i should quit <laughs> oh he is fantastic uh how about for you guys with the fresh perspective here you just watched it what had you chuckling jeff Chuckling. I mean, I, I, I'm the same way. I, I like the the cave sequence. Yeah, it definitely like there's something about like a resistant combatant. It's almost like your body is acting without your mind. And I thought that was really impressive. I mean, that was some of my favorite stuff is the the stunt work, the karate sequences. Like it was surprisingly good. The the fight scenes. Now, interestingly enough, Jeff and Nick, maybe you can mention something about this, but Ernie Reyes Sr. has been interviewed and said that the fight choreography, they only got one take to do all that because so much time was spent by the director just filming the comedy, filming all the dialogue scenes that, that when they had a little extra time at the end of the day, okay, go do your fights real quick. You know, like it's so Ernie Reyes Sr. said, yeah, it was super rush job. We didn't get to do everything we wanted to do just because there wasn't time. Wow, I... That's news to me. Because <laughs> a lot of times, if you think about it, I'm not really in those scenes. Yeah. Per se. Like, I mean, right. in theory, the character's there. But, I mean, they did those oftentimes at night and on times where I was no longer working. Because at the age I was, you know, you can only be allowed to work on set for X amount of hours. And I would just be done for the day. And they would, you know, send me back to the hotel and I would just relax. So I had no idea what was going on after I left. So I I could imagine, though, that, you know, they were a bit stressed. And it's odd, too, because a lot of the people, not everybody, but and you can tell which ones. But a lot of the people who were doing stunts were just like picked up in Thailand. Oh, wow. Oh, (laughs) like. Obviously, like, the, you know, the guys who are doing the, the bulk of the work are pretty solid and then came, you know, from Ernie's team. But there are definitely guys in there who are just crazy flips and doing things that were just plucked off the streets, more or less. <laughs> and they great. never had time to give you a lesson? You didn't get to learn any moves or anything? That wasn't my character. So, you know. It's I, I did my duties with the uh, with the old game gear. So <laughs> yeah, using it as a ninja star to disarm Colonel Chi, man. Exactly. So I did you know I did my part. All right, how about for you, Jeremy? You big Leslie Nielsen fan? Yes, he did kind of feel out of out of place in this one, taking over a Pacific island. Okay, that's <laughs> that's an interesting no real choice. motivation there. Yeah, right. The biggest question I had was Rob Schneider's character being a ginger an actual choice by the director or was that a Rob choice? Asks our resident <laughs> As a ginger. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Boy, I'm not sure about that. Yeah, I, I I think that was maybe a discussion that he had with them 
again, him wanting to riff on whatever just kind of randomness that came to mind. Um, totally living off the the 80s bad boys of all the villains were redheads and uh, and now he gets to be the comic. Well, I wonder, too, and this is a strange one. I wonder if the red hair choice was to kind of separate him from the rest of us. I was thinking uh, that as well. It he, was so that he didn't look quite as Islander as everybody yeah, else. Because he and myself and Ernie are all half Filipino. Yeah. So I think maybe that was for him to be the white guy. Yeah. <laughs> he looked quite pale. I was wondering if they kept him out of the sun there on SNL. Well, you know, he is he is half German, so. <laughs> got the Schneider. Well, that surprised me because he even had the line in the movie about you're not Asian. Yeah. yeah. Two nice. words. David Carradine, Kung Fu. <laughs> exactly. uh, I will yeah. say for me, I mean, obviously there's so many scenes, but I'm a sucker for like character actors and bit players. So I love after the Burger Shack gets trashed, just those two surfer dudes who walk up. They're like, excuse me, are you open? Yeah. I'm telling you, they got killer shakes here, man. You, you know, the food's good because cops. <laughs> You know what's crazy that I found out later? One of those guys is the creator of Arrested Development. Oh, wow. Yeah, he looked very familiar, and I saw him on Community. Like, the last season of Community, he plays this character. And I was like, it's that guy! Yeah, (laughs) so they were actually brought on, I believe, they were there doctoring the script with jokes. And they just kind of threw them in there as these random one-offs. But I think they were there to doctor the script, which, you know, kind of foreshadows his comic abilities with you know creation of rest development and all that yeah that's great now the, the the part that i've always gone back to over and over again i love the version of barbara ann performed by johnny at the mm. assembly for the baba ram and i actually recorded it off of tv on an audio cassette as a kid and just listened to that segment over and over again then i bought the soundtrack hoping it would be on there but it's the version from the end of the film with the baba ram singing in his silly falsetto voice so i was kind of bummed i was like I don't have a clean copy of, of that version, which I assume is not Ernie singing, but <laughs> very close. You can imagine it would be. Yeah, exactly. Now, Noel, you mentioned the novelization, so I wanted mm-hmm. to talk a little bit about a few of the deleted scenes that are presented in the novelization. You warned it's been a decade since I've read it. Okay, well, I just read it this week, so we'll, we'll get into it then. But, you know, a couple of years back, How Did This Get Made covered Surf Ninjas, and Nick was there at that live show, uh, mm-hmm. and they discussed the novelization, and as a result, it skyrocketed to like a 100 bucks on eBay for like six months. And so I had to wait patiently until I could get a copy for like 10 bucks, you know? <laughs> See, I was smart. I got a copy 20 years ago. See, yes, you were on top of it. But anyway, so in the novelization, Nick, uh, the Adam character is much more of a little Romeo. Like he's constantly spouting one-liners to girls he meets. And Johnny yes. is always amazed how smooth he is with the ladies. So was that in the script? Did you guys film any of that? Totally did. Yeah. So there was several sequences in which I just kind of like cheesy pickup line to all these random girls. You know, one at the school, one at the while we're surfing, one even at the end during the coronation, we're walking down the red, the kind of the carpet, the red carpet thing. And I pause to talk to this girl and I say, excuse me, miss, you dropped something. My jaw. 
And if you look closely in the credits, uh, while we're all kind of dancing, you can see me dancing with that girl. So oh, cool. all on the cutting room floor somewhere. But I think they wanted to kind of leave the romance back to the Johnny and Romay. Yeah, that's interesting. Also, there is a constant use of the word rank, like a slang term, rank, R-A-N-K, that in the movie, it seems like they traded all the uses of rank for psych. So I'm just curious for you, Nick, do you recall having to rehearse or reading in the script the word rank? I don't offhand, but it does sound really familiar. And then on top of that, I believe there's a scene where I do say psych, but it's been dubbed. So I'm guessing I probably said rank. Yeah, it might have been rank. Yeah, we do. I think there was like a couple of places where they were trying out slang that just in the end sounded dumb. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I wonder if they were doing a play on like rank amateur or something. You're probably yeah. right, Noel. It's not like they really wanted that to catch on. Psych is definitely the more used word for that scenario. So Now, were there any deleted scenes aside from the ones we've discussed that you recall, Nick, filming that you're like, hey, what happened to that when you saw it in theaters? There was a bit that appears in the trailer during the montage where we're on the boat heading over to Patusan, mm-hmm. in which I like grab the ship's wheel and start like turning it left and right. And then the whole boat starts shaking. And then like the captain <laughs> shoots, shoots me away. <laughs> and there was a couple other sequences, I think, on the boat where I was like, wait, what's going on here? Because in the montage, I'm not to be seen at all. Like, yeah. I'm just not there till the end of the sequence. So we filmed a few things there, but it was probably timing more than anything. I think there was a scene also on the boat where uh, Johnny or somebody's skateboarding and then gets called away and Zatch, who's nearby, goes over to the skateboard to try it and falls on his ass. <laughs> Little bits like that. But I mean, for the most part, I think a lot of what we shot ended up in the film. Okay. Speaking of Zatch, there is a moment in the book where they actually refer to where he got his eye patch, which is explained kind of in the flashback in the movie. But here it says, Iggy and Adam helped several rebels hoist Zatch onto a stretcher. So Zatch, Iggy said, you have to tell me, now that this is all over, how did you lose your eye? The whole story, no matter how gruesome. I didn't lose it. Zatch lifted his patch halfway, then paused. Lazy eye. When I talk to people, they don't know which eye to look at. It's really embarrassing. Really? Iggy said. Zatch let the patch snap back into place. Rank. <laughs> so, Zatch was messing with Iggy. It sounds oddly familiar. Oh, so okay. Maybe, maybe we did film that. It's, it's weird because it's like, you know, this is... 25 plus years ago now my memory is a little hazy when certain things are referenced but when i hear that now it's just like oh just coming right back so very likely we filmed that yeah Yeah, there's there's also a scene at gumbay's restaurant where johnny is asked to speak to the assembled patusati people he fakes his way through the speech by opening a bunch of fortune cookies and he was just reading fortune cookie idioms to people i don't know if that rings a bell yep that totally filmed that one yeah okay Smashing uh, fortune cookies underneath the table the whole time. <laughs> the last thing here is that the character of Colonel Chi in the book, there is a much more pronounced tiger motif for Colonel Chi. Like, his soldiers are called tiger ninjas. And you do see, like, when they're attacking the restaurant, like, you do see some of them in, in the orange tiger stripes and things like that. His robotic hand is referred to as a tiger claw. And then in a full deleted scene, this is actually pretty funny here, because 
because he says she approached him now carrying an enormous metal helmet it was shaped like a tiger head with angry slits for eyes and a set of knife-like fangs manchu followed him with admiring eyes he put it over his head his eyes barely showed through the slits as he turned to leave he bumped against the computer console then he knocked over a table and a small cart he stopped in his tracks uh tonight i think i shall leave my tiger head in the car came his muffled voice where it will strike fear in the hearts of anyone who passes by <laughs> more comedy there wow so yeah i mean as you read that i can see leslie nielsen doing it in my brain 100%, no, yeah. that's totally seems like his style of comedy but uh yeah there's definitely a tiger motif going on if you look closely at his hand it is that does have kind of claws on it and the tiger head helmet can be seen in the passenger seat of the car near the end when he's driving, shooting like a... Oh, wow. So it's, it's a blink and you'll miss it kind of a deal, but we definitely have that on set. So yeah, pretty much the novelization is seems to be following the script to a T. Yeah, for sure. Now, there was a report that Leslie Nielsen stayed in characters Colonel Chi. It was kind of gruff off camera. Do you remember that being the case at all? Were you around him much? I've heard that too, especially over the years. But uh, to be honest, I wasn't really around him at all. Um, his scenes were few and far between and shot either by himself or with Manchu in the cave or like the fight with Ernie. I did approach him for a photo op. So I do have that photo. Uh, I kind of feel like he maybe didn't know that I was one of the leads. Like he probably <laughs> thought it was some kid asking for a photo. You know what I mean? Because for all, for all I know, he had no clue who I was. So. That was my interaction. Okay. Well, that's great. Now, the last question I have for you, Nick, just about things that I've noticed in the film for all these years is, you know, at the end, like you said, you're dancing with that girl, Barbara is singing Barbara Ann and everybody's rocking out. But at the beginning of the choreography, you always look a little nervous, like you're looking around trying to see what everybody else is doing. Do you recall that being like confusing or was it like just a rushed scene? They're like, hey, we got to go. Like, Yeah, no, uh, I can tell you exactly what's going on there. So... <laughs> In the scene previous, and we're wearing, you know, our royal garb mm -hmm. and our crowns and everything. The crown I was wearing was actually, an, I believe, like an ancient, not ancient, but like a, you know, a real crown from Thailand, I believe. Oh. Um, so it was heavy and it was metal. And in order for it to situate on my head right, they kind of put this turban thing underneath it. So then when we it came time to do the Barbara Ann number and rehearse it and choreograph it, they wanted me to keep the turban on. And I was just like, no. I don't want to do that. Like, for some reason, I thought it looked stupid. I was embarrassed by it. It was also hot as, you know, like, we were in Thailand in the dead of summer, and it was, like, 100% humidity all times. And this was actually near the end of the shoot, too. So I think maybe I was just cranky. So at the beginning of that sequence, you could, that look is just kind of me just kind of not wanting to be there. <laughs> and, as, and as it progresses, I, I get into it a little bit more. But, yeah, that's def definitely what it is. That okay. look me just being like, are we done yet? <laughs> Can we get <laughs> Yeah. Did you have any questions, Noel or Jeff? Anything come to mind as you watch the film? I mean, t tell us about Neil Israel, the director. Just what was it like working with him? He was fantastic. As far as I can remember, he was just like a big kid himself, which is totally a good way to get everybody on board for a movie like this. Because we're, we were all just having fun. It never felt stressful or, you know what I mean? Like, he just made it for a great fun environment on set which is kind of you know what you would hope a director would do because you know they're the captain of the ship and uh you know if they're angry or weird it's just the whole mood changes but yeah he was he was great 
it was real fun to work with. Yeah, and it really obviously comes through. I think that's what everybody relates to about this film in the end. Like, the casting was perfect. Everybody feels like a cohesive unit. You like everybody. And, you know, most of all, I feel like, you know, the movie obviously was carried on Ernie's Jr.'s shoulders. And it, he 100% does it. He is so kind. He, he just has that you love him no matter what kind of aura to him. And he just seems like, you know, he, he must be that way in real life as well. Is that your experience, Nick? Yeah, pretty much everybody there. Just You hear this about like filmmaking a lot, but it was truly a family, especially having to travel, you know, and be this unit that's together at all times. You know, there was times where we were filming in locations where there was just a small hotel in the middle of nowhere. Only place to really eat was in the hotel restaurant. And so, you know, we all got really close and got to know each other. And like, I was the only kid on the set for the most of the time. So they really took me in under their wing and was, you know, I was friends with the people who did the props and the people who did the special effects and the costumers and, you know, they really just let me kind of have fun on set, you know, going into their trucks and playing with everything and just, you know, everybody was just super cool. Uh, did you end up keeping any souvenirs from the set or any mementos? Keep a headband or anything like that? Whew. If I could have a headband, that would be amazing. I do have one of the patches from the headband. Um, so that's like pretty much it. I only have it because when we were filming the sequence where we're grabbing all like the country people to come fight with us and giving them headbands. When we were done filming that, I found one on the floor. So <laughs> picked it up, dusted it off, and uh, I've had it ever since. In fact, I know exactly where it is right now. Oh, that's awesome. I'd love to hear that. So after, you know, the movie comes out, everything, and we know what you didn't blow up the box office, but it has certainly grown over the years. Like we say, so many people found it on home video. So many people love it. And, it, you know, it just brings a smile to so many faces. Did you hear, like, talk? Was there going to be an animated series? Was there ever talk of a sequel seriously in your mind? Or did the box office prevent that? I don't remember a sequel per se. And I'm, I mean, I am guessing that box office had a lot to do with that. But there were talks about an animated series. In fact, the producer we mentioned earlier, Evgen, um, I had gone to a, a screening and he had mentioned it to me that they were in development. And I and I believe I've seen an article talking about that as well, that like the studio Nelvana was about to uh, mm -hmm. work on. Um, oh, I can see that work, yeah. But I'm guessing, again, box office makes a big difference there. But I'm not surprised that they were developing it because like everything that was a movie back then got an animated series. Yeah. And the fact that there was no toy line, all of that is very surprising. There was only the actual video game for the Game Gear, yeah. which came out. No, that's, I mean, honestly, that's one of the things I think is a shame that there wasn't really merch for it. You know, there wasn't T-shirts or anything. It's kind of yeah. surprising. Um, I, I think I've heard that it has to do with the fact that at the time, New Line Cinema was they were changing hands leadership. Um, so the in a way, the movie kind of fell through the cracks. It came out, but there wasn't a ton of marketing for it. You know, it's like I saw, I think I saw a commercial or two, like maybe once or twice. There was like one billboard I remembered in my town and one bus stop thing and one. Uh, it was actually on the side of a bus as well. But other than that, I don't I don't think they really, you know, marketed it in a way that would have made it bigger, unfortunately. And they probably were just like, yeah, let's just get this thing out and move on. 
and not do merch. <laughs> yeah, but you know, it is, yeah, it's unfortunate that nowadays, obviously, there is a fan base for it. It's only grown in popularity. And I know in our conversations back and forth, and I'm sure people ask you all the time, but you know, is there going to be a sequel? And you know, when you look at interviews with Ernie, he says he's up for it. I know you've reached out to Kelly. She's like, yes, I would do it. You know, so it seems like you know, if uh, the right project came along, and whether it's you know Netflix or whoever else wants to produce it, you know, people would definitely be excited to see a surf ninjas too and so we have you on here because we know that you yourself have thought up a concept for what a sequel to this movie could be obviously perfect for our podcast and so we're so grateful for you sharing that with us here so nick take it away all right so the look and feel of this film should evoke a late 80s early 90s film aesthetic a mix of drive and point break gritty harsh high contrast monochromatic palettes were available with pops of color sprinkled throughout Streets are wet at night and lots of neon signs. Days are sun-bleached, washed out, high contrast. Shadows are black. Whereas the original Surf Ninjas was slapstick kitty fair, Surf Ninjas 2 should, on the surface, appear to be a serious action film, which takes its foolish plot very seriously. It's self-aware. The audience is in on the gag. The characters are not. The humor comes in small doses sprinkled throughout, and an absurd visual effects action spectacle is revealed abruptly in the final act. Music score should be dark video game moody and very synth heavy john carpenter laserhawk the chromatics kavinsky stranger things all right so the backstory after johnny has dissolved the monarchy and put the patusani government in the hands of its people the small third world country went through a period of growth and prosperity in the 20 years that followed quickly developing into a nation of economic prowess but over time the capital city of tom kakai became overrun by a crime syndicate called the tiger's paw referred to some as the children of chi uh, these are rebels who believed in the ideal of Colonel Chi and who banded together and over time corrupted the city, infiltrating the government and police forces. Something kind of like Gotham City. The people of the city live, live in fear of the tiger paw, bowing to their every whim. The paw patrol the streets in groups, easily identified by their tiger tattoos and slick 50s greaser-like appearances, leather jackets, black sunglasses, pompadours. They are basically the Patusani Yakuza. All right, so the movie catches up with present-day Johnny and Adam, who now work for a counter-terrorism unit in Los Angeles. Johnny is a top agent, and Adam is their highest-level technology specialist, analyst, and computer hacker. The unit is run by director Spencer Spence. Tone Milk's character. Iggy was previously working as an undercover agent, hearkening back to his love of characters and disguises, such as Uncle Iggy. Rome is now the American diplomat to Patusan and a liaison to the prime minister, who is one of the few Patusani government officials who is not corrupt. The film starts with a prologue saying, 20 years later. The movie cold opens with Johnny and Adam on a covert ops rescue mission to save Iggy, who's been deep undercover and with whom they've lost communication. They bust into a dingy, dilapidated brick apartment building where they eventually find Iggy in a room strapped to a table, nearly incoherent and hooked up to odd, unidentifiable machinery. He's clearly been experimented on and dies in front of the boys, but not before he can tell Johnny he blames him for not rescuing him sooner. Johnny is visibly upset at the loss of his best friend. Then the opening credits. Credits roll over slow motion shots of surfers at dawn, basically mimicking the original opening, but it's a little bit more stark, a little bit more gritty. It's dawn, it's dark. Guns N' Roses' Paradise City plays during the opening credits, which uh, originally was the song that was supposed to be playing during the opening credits. 
Oh. We'll get that back in there. So credits end, and we see five years after. So the two surfers come to shore. We see that it's Johnny and Adam. They fist bump, talk about the morning, dry themselves off. We see them at the LADCT, which is the Los Angeles Division of Counterterrorism. The brothers enter the building. They're met by Director Spence. He tells them he wants to brief them about their next assignment. Uh, Johnny goes to his office, Adam to his station, which is a bunch of, you know, computer screens, you know, bank of computer screens. Johnny settles in and gets a call from Romay. She's in Patusan, accompanying the prime minister, uh, riding with him in his convoy as they drive to the airport on their way back to Los Angeles for a global conference. But suddenly a bunch of vehicles pull up alongside them and they're attacked. Romay is cut off from Johnny. She and the prime minister have hoods thrown over their heads and they're taken into the vans. One of the mercenaries who has a large tiger tattoo on his neck picks up the phone and tells Johnny that in order to secure the safety of the prime minister and of Romay, he and Adam must personally travel to Patusan and await further demands. So basically they put a small unit together and they travel to Patusan. At this point, there's some plot stuff that I haven't really figured out, so we'll skip ahead. But basically, they're in the slums of Patusan at some point, which are kind of like the narrows of Gotham, where they see uh, a lot of poverty and crime. Uh, They encounter a bunch of homeless people, kind of skid row. There's a homeless man that's kind of taking note of them who seems to be watching them, and we kind of see that he's following them a bit. We never really get a good look at him, but he kind of follows them throughout the rest of the film. Throughout the story, we cut to Romay, who is basically saving herself and the prime minister and escaping, um, defeating guards and whatnot. We want to give her like a pretty strong plot here so she's not just like a damsel in distress. So this is where it gets good. So like I mentioned earlier, it's pretty much like a serious film until this point where things get a little crazy. Basically, the boys reach the stronghold of the tiger's paw, where it's assumed the prime minister and Romay are being held. There we meet the head of the gang, a slender, mixed-race Asian man with slicked hair and a sharp, tailored sharkskin suit, and several fine but noticeable scars on his face. He perches from a loft that overlooks the warehouse-like room. Upon our hero's entrance, he approaches the railing, and with a few snaps of his fingers, he orders that they be attacked by his warriors. This is where the craziness begins. The fights should be outlandish as if directed by Stephen Chow. Wire work and Street Fighter-style bursts of energy. Johnny easily fights off multiples of brutes with exaggerated Street Fighter-style moves, with energy bursts emitting from his fist, while Adam tries to hack into the fortress's computer-slash-security systems from a panel on the wall. Seeing that the battle becomes more intense, Adam stops his task and focuses on helping his brother. His eyes turn black, and he contributes to the fight by using telekinetic powers to hurl large objects into foes, <laughs> at one point even lowering a large section of the ceiling onto a group of attackers heading for Johnny, leaving an open hole to the night sky to which Johnny gives Adam a look of acknowledgement as if to say, thanks, bro. The fight continues. Between Adam hurling large objects all over the place and Johnny kicking some major butt, there's a flurry of activity. Seeing that wave after wave of warriors he is sending are being easily defeated, the evil leader sends a trio of super-deadly elite mercenaries to take care of business. They are fearsome, hulking beasts, almost cartoonishly so. Mutated or bio-enhanced, maybe? They are very strong with intense fighting powers and weapons of their own. Johnny and Adam are outnumbered here, three to two, and are taking a beating. Then, a flash of lightning and a thunderclap. From the hole in the ceiling, a cross-legged, cloaked being descends from the night sky, electricity emitting off of him and crawling along the walls. It is the homeless man from earlier, who tosses off his ratty cloak to reveal Zatch. His hair is a flowing sea of white, the same color as his eyes, as he is now completely blind. 
He joins the boys in battle. His moves are simple but efficient, clean, precise, elegant, almost as if he's moving in slow motion. These moves are mixed with bolts of lightning that shoot from his hands almost like a Sith Lord. With Zatch's help, these final goons are defeated, leaving a silence amongst the room of knocked-out bodies. A slow clap echoes as the Tiger's Paw leader descends the staircase and steps out of the shadows. He compliments Johnny and Adam on their talents, but cockily assures them that they have not won. With that, Johnny winds up. Visibly drawing all the energy and power in the room to him, delivers a mean right hook straight to the criminal mastermind's face. With a mighty force, Johnny throws the punch, but the moment his fist makes contact with cheekbone, we hear a solid-sounding clink, and Johnny is instantly propelled backwards with a visible shockwave, the force with which he punched being completely directed back at him and sending him flying 20 feet. The evil leader is unmoved, but we see a glimmer from the spot where he was hit. Johnny, being attended to by Adam and Zatch, is in pain, but notices a twinkle from the man's face as he squints from across the room. After a moment of wonder, he has a sinking look of realization, a close-up of Johnny as he quietly says no to himself as we cut to a close-up of the leader who realizes he has a small tear in his skin where blood drips he reaches up to touch his wound pulls away a bit of skin which reveals metal underneath yes he says addressing the crew it's true let me formally introduce myself my name is ken chi it is here that he tells a flashback about his father Colonel Chi. I could probably paraphrase this a bit and speed it up, but basically Colonel Chi is a soldier working in Patusan during a war. He falls in love with a woman there who ends up being the queen's sister. They have a forbidden love. They have a son who is hidden away from him while he gains his rule. This kid is, grows up. He learns the ways of like kind of a warrior out in the jungles and finds out that Colonel Chi, this person they've been talking about, is his father and he shows up in time just to see johnny kill him so we see another angle of him being pushed in the water and being electrocuted so basically ken uh, explains that it's due to the death of his father that he's been seeking revenge on johnny by hurting those dear to him including iggy and romay johnny is shocked to hear that this man is also responsible for iggy's demise and tells him that he will pay for the death of his best friend to which ken replies with a confused death no johnny your friend is not dead he then smirks evilly, and a shadowy figure drops down in front of Johnny and Adam from the catwalk above. Blood <laughs> echoing heavy metallic thud, he rises to reveal that he is Iggy, but he is not the Iggy that the boys remember. He's soulless and a deadly killing machine with a robotic enhancements. He is this story's winter soldier, with a chunky robotic right arm that echoes Colonel Chi's robotic hand, but with the proportions of Hellboy's right hand of doom. I'd like you to meet my right-hand man, says Ken. My father's enhancements were just the beginning, the prototypes I needed to start my own experimentation. Your friend here was the first successful result. I was the next. He removes his jacket and dress shirt to reveal two sleek metal arms surrounded by decorative chest tattoos. So this is the final fight. Johnny and Adam and Zatch battle Ken and Iggy. Eventually, Iggy is defeated. Johnny continues to fight Ken while Adam helps. Romay ends up on the scene, you know, having saved herself and the prime minister basically johnny wins the fight and ken is electrocuted the same way as his father when he delivers a kick that sends him careening into a power generator that makes contact with his two metal arms johnny is reunited with romay and they all mourn iggy's lifeless body <laughs> so uh, the epilogue is that the bros are back in california at the beach to catch some waves some much needed r and r they have a ceremony for iggy's ashes which they float out to see on the surfboard then they head out and start crushing some gnarly waves. But while out there, a band of ninja thugs surf up alongside them. Johnny and Adam exchange glances as if to say, here we go again. Johnny jumps into the air, and we freeze when the credits roll. Yeah! <laughs> the post credit scene is they come back from their fight. Their boards are messed up. They're all bleeding and broken. Adam reaches into his bag to see his device has a message that says, you have a new message. 
which she clicks on and it reveals a glitchy mess of pixels and digital garbage. There's a digital laugh and a face that kind of appears through the mess. It's kind of hard to make out through the essentially matrix code looking cyber gunk. The uh, electronic voice speaks, explaining that the heroes are responsible for his demise, not once, but twice. And now comes the real revenge. The face becomes clearer and we see Iggy spelled with a one. <laughs> Basically, it's the uploaded brain of Iggy, who has become a computer virus and kind of looks like a modern Max Headroom. His vengeance comes in the form of an AI computer virus with the intention of shutting down all of Los Angeles and eventually the world. Kind of like that really bad Johnny Depp movie, Transcendence. <laughs> the boys look on in horror as Iggy laughs maniacally and we cut to black. So that's my pitch. Wow. Yeah, I mean that. I, I the whole time I, I know you you mentioned you know the style up front. I'm imagining like Kung Fury. Yes. style for this yes. like yeah just so over the top and intense and you're just like this is great <laughs> yeah and i and i kind of figured that there'll be humor throughout but i kind of wanted to not make it humorous like as as like a like joke humor so much as just kind of just absurdity because the original movie is a bit absurd i guess we could say and that's one way yeah, to so <laughs> I wanted this one to kind of like try to appear like it's being serious, kind of like a lot of how these reboots and things are kind of like the more serious version. Right. But it, at the end, it just kind of goes haywire and it's nuts and it's like you know creatures and robots and rated zatch. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like I threw everything I could think of from pop culture into it. You know, we've got Gotham City and you've got Raiden, and you've got Winter Soldier and Hellboy and like you know all these crazy things just. At the end, it's kind of like a free-for-all nostalgia fest for all of us who grew up in the 90s. It's like full cyberpunk Mortal Kombat, yeah. Yeah. Uh All right, Noel, what do you have for us? Ooh, okay, this one's going to be a little long. I'm going to try to tighten it up as I go along. Let's see how it goes. Uh, Interesting, a few parallels with, with what Nick had there, but definitely a different tone. All right, so we open on a beach, swooping into frame with a big, bright smile right at the camera is Johnny, welcoming us to Patusan and the grand opening of the island's new beach resort and strip mall on this, the 10th anniversary of when the island was liberated and the people were made free. And yeah, I did set this 10 years after, though it wouldn't take that much uh, tweaking in order to make it something that you could set today. So as we pull back, we see Johnny is working with a film crew to film a tourism video, and we'll keep intercutting with their shoot as we see the renovation of the island nation. The temples and castle are still high atop the cliff, but the villages along the slope have been replaced with modern housing and infrastructure, and the beach has been fully renovated with pricey bungalows, hotels, pools, and a new dock where a private yacht is dropping off the first wave of tourists. As Johnny pops over to say hello and pick up some shots for the video, we recognize among them Lieutenant Spence, a little awkward on his own as he's wedged between a posh, overly inquisitive yuppie couple and a pair of elderly sisters who photograph everything. He's excited for the vacation, but little does he know that he'll be stuck with these fellow tourists for his entire stay. Picking up with Johnny again, he shows us the renovated coastline with roped-off beaches, scuba adventures, and surf instructors. A little girl interrupts him, his bespectacled nine-year-old daughter, Alon. He tries to get her to pose for the camera, but she's nervous and wants to tell him something. He says he's busy and rushes off to the next spot. She runs around a corner where she sits down a CD player, starts up a dance track, strikes a pose, but then freaks out and turns it back off again. She just stares at the CD player, a bundle of nerves. We'll find out why soon. Johnny next takes us to the open-air strip mall and food court, showing off the various shops and restaurants, and even passes the New Age temple of Iggy, who's become a moderately successful cult guru of juice cleanses and a two-step program built around the words what and if. 
<laughs> Johnny ends the tourism video at the Castle Gong, where the same player with a big smile is now showing off his bright new uniform and a brand new dental bridge. Throughout all this brightness and modern gloss, we start to see dissatisfaction among the people. Tala, an aging traditional weaver and seamstress, looks at the young generation caught up in the modern fashion store. A fisherman named Ulan watches from far out in the ocean as his boats are no longer welcome near the roped-off beaches. And seeing how meager his conglomeration has become, the Bab Aram steps out of his temple and glowers at the growing group forming around the new teachings of Iggy. As the tourists settle in, Johnny meets with the new parliament that oversees the island, uh, among which is Rome, his wife. While Johnny and Rome did technically abdicate the throne, the people still look up to them and seek their guidance and leadership. Rome dove into the responsibility and is widely beloved for her determination, wisdom, and ability to bring the people together. As for Johnny, while he spearheaded the resort and is trying to sell everyone on how happy the tourists look, he's constantly ducking questions about accounting and sustainability. All of this prosperity is a result of Adam, who's off studying in America, but quickly became a child prodigy of global finance markets and caused the economy of Padusan to soar. Any questions about money, Johnny ducks by saying he'll reach out to Adam and will totally hear something soon. But right now, he has something more important to focus on. Planning National Party Night, which is every single Friday. We cut to a dark room where Ulan the fisherman, Tala the seamstress, the Babaram, and others raise their concern about the current situation and growing dissatisfaction among the populace. They all agree to bring it up that night at party night. As the sun sets and Spence and his tourist team ascend to the castle on a new skyline that runs alongside the endless staircase, Rome helps to dress their daughter Alon for a ceremonial dance the girl is supposed to perform with her parents. The girl is nervous, saying she's been having difficulty practicing and doesn't want to suck. But Rome tells her to just have fun and wait for her cue. As the party night starts, there's fireworks, glow sticks, beach guitars, and a DJ. Spence tries to find a dance partner but keeps running into the two elderly sisters. Iggy is dishing up his special veggie punch while saying to his shy followers, but what if you have fun? As the first song ends, the spotlight goes to the throne room and out come Johnny and Rome, who begin a tra traditional dance of welcome that suddenly breaks into a techno rave that fires up the whole crowd. As Rome turns back to give Alon her cue to join, the girl starts to sheepishly enter, but the music suddenly cuts out. Emerging from the confusion, Ulan shouts that he'd like a word with their king. He's backed by the other fishermen, and Tala and her students, and other tailors and farmers, and the Babaram and his remaining followers, and even half the ruling parliament. They all want a word with the king. Nervously looking from them to the confused tourist, Johnny says, Guys, I'm not the king anymore. You rule yourselves. Then why is there a resort we don't want? Why are there strangers on our lands? Why are we now working for their comfort instead of sharing in the prosperity your brother gave us? As the people speak, factions begin to emerge. Those who feel this is a good opportunity to emerge into the world, countered by those who feel the world is invading them. Those who like the new jobs and industry and those who miss the traditional ways and comforts. Most of all, people want to know why they feel they have to sell themselves when the riches from Adam should be spread among them all. They press Johnny on this. He wants to duck the issue or talk about it in private, but they won't budge. Even Rome starts to back away from him. They're not wrong, Johnny. There's something you're not telling us. Johnny finally fesses up. He hasn't heard from Adam in three years. And since then, the money stopped flowing in and their reserves have begun to dry up. Converting the island to a resort is Johnny's last-ditch effort to bring in more cash. Well, why didn't he go and find Adam? Because he sent Zatch to do so. But even Zatch disappeared. These revelations infuriate the crowd who feel lied to. This was all an illusion to cover Johnny's own failed leadership, as he'd rather dance and party than protect his people. As glares and voices get more angry, the tourists start to get antsy. Ulan and his group are the first to get violent, producing clubs as they start breaking up the food tables and musical equipment. The more peaceful factions protect the tourists and usher them down the long descent of stairs, including the Babaram, even as he still swats at Iggy, who keeps trying to what-if his way out of the situation. 
Through it all, Johnny is stunned. He doesn't know what to say, who to fight, how to lead. He's got nothing, and just weakly swats at people as they tear his royal garb away. Romay tries to go for him, but she's pulled to safety by the ruling parliament. The people hoist Johnny up and send him out with the tourists, who are quickly packed up and forced back on the yacht. As the boat takes off, Johnny just stares back at the island. They dumped me. They dumped me. A small hand reaches up and grabs his. He looks down to find his daughter Alon is with him. Also clasping a hand on his shoulder is Spence, who promises to track Adam down. As they sail away, we see shots of Johnny stooped in despair and Spence showing Alon some dance moves before making calls, intercut with growing change on the island. Ulan, the fisherman, and their supporters have torn apart the stores and resort, but as one fisherman approaches with a torch, Tala stops him. Whatever these buildings are me- were meant for, they were built by their people, and they will still be used by their people. This sparks a disagreement and we see further fracturings of the group as those for the resort quickly become pressured into a minority with Iggy's own followers ultimately locking him up after asking what if he's just a fake and the peaceful and more violent factions of resistance are now at odds over what to do next even the ruling parliament is fractured with Rome frozen out as everyone feels she's too compromised when she tries to build enough backing to gain a majority foothold she ends up locked in a cell down the hall from Iggy one particular member of Ulan's faction, a, a man named Putok, digs a trunk out of his root cellar. Inside is a blue camouflage uniform and an assault rifle. That's right, he was one of the soldiers of the late Colonel Chi. As he starts walking down the streets with his uniform on and gun in hand, the immediate looks of disgust start to turn to fear as other former soldiers decide to dust off the old ways and state that the country was stronger when those with power were in charge and commanded respect with fear. Even Ulan is beginning to have regrets at the movement he's now set forth, as opposing members of the parliament, the Babaram, and others who stand against this new uprising are added to those prison cells. The Babaram is especially displeased because he's now sharing a cell with Iggy. Spence drives up with Johnny and Alon to a house in California where Adam was last known to be residing. It's a fancy house, but there's a boot on the car out front, a recent foreclosure notice on the door, and the grass hasn't been cut for a while. Johnny says goodbye to Spence, who promises to visit again when things settle down. There's still a light on inside, and Johnny enters to find Adam asleep on an air mattress with all the furniture cleared out and sold. He wakes his brother up and demands to know what's going on and why he disappears. Adam says it's because his power stopped working. All of the money, all of the financial success of Padusan was because he used his power as a seer to read and manipulate markets and investments. But the moment he came to America to build up his own fortune, the vision stopped coming. But what about the game gear? Adam points to a closet, which Alon opens to reveal all kinds of video game consoles, all broken in anger. None of them worked, so he just gambled on pure risk, and all his money went away. Johnny asks, what about Zatch? Oh, he's over there. Sure enough, Zatch has suddenly appeared, kneeling in the corner of the room. Johnny runs over and starts punching him in the arm. Why didn't you get me? Why didn't you tell me this is what was happening? Zatch just looks him straight in the eye. Because it was your destiny to fail so that both of you could take the next road on your journey. Adam failed because he was no longer using his powers for the people. Johnny failed because his first act as leader was to drop the responsibilities on everyone else and just party. Yes, they freed their people once years ago, but neither has continued to live up to their destiny ever since. Curious, Alon approaches Zatch and asks, what's my destiny? He smiles at her. You are the future. You'll make your own destiny. Johnny decides it's time to return home and face the people. Adam is reluctant to help, but Alon hands him the cracked old game gear. The screen flickers for a moment with the familiar logo, and Adam decides to join them. They turn to Zatch. No, it's not his time to return yet. His mission is to fight their enemies, and the people of Patusan are not his enemies. 
Back on the island, Ulan finds himself completely discarded by Putak, whose armed forces have completely dismantled the parliament and taken charge, but are now fracturing among themselves over who should lead and what to do next. In the prison, the Babaram continues to chew into Iggy over the way he twists people, but Iggy counters that all he wanted to do was give people hope. That's what what if means. What if I could do something I'm afraid of? What if I could grab an opportunity when it comes? His parents were never there, always bouncing around the world and leaving him behind. All he wanted was some hope that he could find a place where he belonged, where he was wanted. His parents never even yelled at him, just always went away. Hell, I mean, he says to the Babaram, what if you were my dad? This would be the closest thing I'd ever have to a heart-to-heart with my father. The Babaram laughs at this, then stops. He suddenly looks at Iggy, especially his red hair. I never told anyone this, but when I was young and just beginning training, I met a woman and broke my vows for the first and only time in my life. She was here to study the plants. She had red hair. Her name was Iggy cuts him off. If you say Joanne, then you and I are about to have a very unexpected moment here. The Babaram shouts Joanne, and he and his newfound son, Iggy, leap into each other's arms. <laughs> There's suddenly an explosion and gunfire, and Romay runs in, armed to the teeth and leading a resistance against the resistance. She throws guns to both Iggy and the Babaram, but they throw them right back. We're pacifists. Fine, then pacify the guards after we kick their butts. Well, I'm almost done here. A private submarine emerges off the coastline, and Johnny, Adam, and Alan emerge, having called in some favors with a few war buddies of the late Mac. They're wearing wetsuits with boards under their arms. Johnny asks Adam, you ready? Nope, but when has that ever stopped us? They hop in the water and surf to shore, Alon getting to ride with her father. As they arrive on shore, Romay, Iggy, the Babaram, and their fellow fighters break through the foliage and race along the beach, uniformed soldiers firing after them. They meet up with their surprised family and drag them along as they hide in the caves. As they gather their breasts, they try to make a plan. The soldiers, while few in number, are so heavily armed that they'll be tough to overcome, and nobody wants any civilians getting caught in the crossfire. Adam starts asking about the mall and if there was an arcade. There was. He says, take me there. The core group slips past the guard and makes it to the arcade. Adam says to give him one hour and he slips inside. The power has been cut and half the games are smashed, but plenty remain. He stops before one unit, tentatively reaches forward, and as he touches it, the Surf Ninja's logo flickers to life. Adam begins to play, triggering a montage of him going through as many games as he can for all the visions he can see. Fighting games, adventure games, a racing game, a dance dance revolution game, hell even skee-ball with the score counter reading Kwon Su. After an hour, he emerges, winded but charged for action. I know exactly what we need to do. Cut to a guerrilla attack montage as our heroes start taking on and disarming pockets of soldiers one after another with the action mirroring what we saw of the games, including a racing sequence with Jeeps and Iggy and his dad sending a bolter down a hill, which plops into an ammo dump just like in Skee-Ball. <laughs> They get down to the final group of Putak and his horses. Their last few weapons are almost out of ammo, but they still have a good number of fighters at their side. Adam uses a game trick to take out the last of the guns, but as soon as Johnny and the others run into fight, Adam suddenly shouts now when all our heroes are surrounded in an ambush. Johnny looks to Adam, betrayed, but Adam says this is necessary, that it's not about beating the people, but facing them. During all of this, nobody notices as Alon slips away. With the guns and soldiers out of the picture, we're back to the arguing factions gathered in the castle courtyard, bombarding Johnny and the others with shouts from all sides as nobody can agree on where to go from here, and everyone blames everyone else for the entire mess. As clubs and fists appear and violence threatens to spark up again, dance music suddenly kicks in, stopping everyone in their tracks. They look to the main gate to see Alon as she sets down her CD player. Thus begins the dance of Alon. 
and it's horrible. All awkward with odd elbows and thrusts and a total lack of rhythm. But she commits and she keeps going, pouring everything she has into it, and everyone just keeps watching. Suddenly, others run in and join her, the other children of Patusan. They all dance with her, finally grabbing the attention of the parents who have been so focused on everything else. As the dance continues, these parents start to join it. Then one faction, then another. Soon Ulan and Tala are laughing and dancing. Iggy and Babaram hit their high notes as they shimmy. Johnny and Rome join their daughter. And as Adam watches them, he smiles, and we see echoes of the moves that he made on the Dance Dance Revolution machine. The music ends and everyone stops. The joy is starting to fade. Johnny steps back up. Yeah, he sucked as a leader. He just wanted to have a good time and didn't take the responsibilities that came with guiding and protecting an entire island of people. He says everyone is wrong about how to fix things because everyone is right about what's wrong. It's right that they need to preserve their traditions and culture. It's right that they need to be a part of the broader world. It's right that everyone deserves to prosper equally. Instead of trying to find compromise and middle ground, let's go the hard route of trying to find a fusion of it all. It'll take a lot of planning and a lot of discussion, but everyone will be in on it this time. This is their island, and they are its people, all of them. Except those dicks. And he points to the guys in the Colonel Chi uniforms. <laughs> and everyone just kind of nods. That's when the Babaram steps forward, his arm around Iggy. He looks around at all the expectant faces and smiles. What if we try? People begin to nod and smile and clasp hands and pick up the debris. As we cut back to Padusan six months later, which has already gotten a financial surge from Adam and is rebuilding itself as a fusion culture, where Talon is teaching her weaving skills online, where the fishermen are again using the beaches but with better targeting due to satellite tracking so people can also enjoy swimming and surfing around them. Iggy is being decked out in monk robes, which he's uncertain about, but the Babaram is in a Hawaiian shirt and smiling what if i retire a small ferry arrives with tourists and it's a much quieter affair as they now tour inns among the populace and it's more about learning from and experiencing the culture than basking in a resort that's now been turned into a community center spence is with the tour group unfortunately so are the yuppie couple and the elderly sisters and at the castle above it all johnny and rome share a wonderfully terrible dance with their daughter as national party night has now been rebranded as stay home and chill with your family night the end oh that's fantastic that's great. That's some meaty character work for you there, Nick. I love it. I'm really proud of Iggy and Bob Ron in that one. It's good stuff. A little political intrigue. We got all sorts Get of stuff going on. Get some actual themes in there, yeah. Yeah. It's interesting because um, I've been trying to find a way to work in a daughter as well because Ernie's actual daughter is, is an actress now herself. Oh, and nice. getting a little bit of uh, work here and there, and some she's getting some awards, and so would probably make for a fun bit of family, you know, to continue yeah. the family line with, you know, Senior being in there and everything. Yeah, no, that'd be fun. Oh, I completely forgot to throw out my title of Surf Ninjas 2, Wansu Ku. Oh, there we Ooh. go. That's Very it. nice. That's it right there. All right. I have a little pitch here that I ended up trying to keep it in the spirit of the original here. So uh, hopefully there's some good yucks throughout. So I bring you Surf Ninjas 2, Kwansu, comma, dude, exclamation point. <laughs> So we open on a montage showing that following the events of the original film, Johnny and Adam returned to Southern California with Mac to finish school, and soon after, Romeo and Johnny were married. Iggy, on the other hand, did not have as much luck and ended up becoming a sanitation worker, cleaning out port-a-sand portable toilets, and we see the goofball age over the decades until we arrive in the modern day, where he is earning extra cash by making bets with his co-workers in a game called What If I, where they dare each other to do jackass style studs. 
Johnny, meanwhile, is enjoying life with Romay, having opened up the Surf Ninja Dojo and Diner, helping underprivileged youth to learn discipline through martial arts and gnarly surf tricks during the day, then serving the most scrumptious burgers on the beach at night. Iggy shows up after hours to mooch burgers, as always. Adam is now a successful professional race car driver who uses his seer abilities to anticipate the moves he needs to make on the track to get ahead with his game gear mounted to the dash like a high-speed GPS. We see him win a race in Spain, which is very ironic, and learn that Adam has used his endorsement deals to open up a chain of Patusani fried chicken restaurants called Curdle Cheese Chicken, with a goofy parody of their former rival as the spokesperson who is always getting beaten up in the commercials since the slogan is this chicken is kicking <laughs> depressed by not reaching the heights of his buddies and still believing he was supposed to be king iggy gets the idea to return to patusan and run for prime minister of the island nation wanting to help lift their friend spirits johnny adam and rome arrange for iggy to return to the island but upon his arrival the would-be politician learns from zatch that the sword of kwan Tzu has gone missing from the royal palace just days before seeking to find and return the sword and in order to be hailed as a hero, Iggy takes off on his own to the Cave of the Ancients, only to discover that the sword was reclaimed by the actual Quan Tzu, played by Jackie Chan, a legendary Pachusani warrior who has been released from a meditative state he was forced into by a conquering wizard warlord centuries before. After being discovered, the seemingly delusional Quan Tzu declares that he must use the enchanted weaponry to destroy a mystical enemy he calls Venice. In an offhanded comment, Iggy mentions that's where he lives and is taken hostage by Quad Tzu, who defeats Zatch in combat when he tries to rescue the foolish goofball. Iggy is then forced to guide this warrior out of time, through the seas, back to California. There'll be plenty of Free Willy, Titanic, and Tom Hanks and Castaway movie references made during the journey by Rob Schneider, of course. They forge an uneasy alliance, and over the course of the film, we see Quan Tzu take Iggy under his wing, mentoring him on how to become a true leader of men. Arriving on land, hijinks ensue as Johnny, Adam, and Rome think Iggy is just teamed up with a crazy man, and Kwan Tzu is involved in many hilarious comedy bits as he acclimates to the modern world. Ultimately, Kwan Tzu proves he's the real deal by performing unnaturally awesome martial arts feats during a battle with attacking demon ninja soldiers sent by Venice, who is also real and has been planning a takeover in Los Angeles under the guise of a movie studio executive played by John Hamm. Ultimately, the gang have to recruit and train an army of local surfers, transforming them into surf ninjas in order to battle Venice in his army of Hollywood stuntmen that he magically transforms into demon ninjas. After a melee, Adam calls it a favor on his cell, then leads the evil hordes away in his racing car as they give chase, ultimately being trapped in a police blockade set up by now Captain Spence. Meanwhile, the combined might of Johnny and Kwan Tzu is no match for the villain in an impressive fight scene with their powerful foe who taunts them with hokey threats of you'll never work in this town again etc iggy interferes at a moment when kwan Tzu is weakened by a particularly brutal hit buying them time the fight culminates in the sword of kwan Tzu splitting in two with one blade going to each heroic warrior when the blades are clashed together they blast venice and disintegrate him in the end iggy does return to patusan as a triumphant hero and becomes prime minister while kwan Tzu, with his duty done peace 
gracefully passes through to the realm of ancient warrior spirits. So under the credits, we see Iggy commissioning a mural of himself as a mighty warrior battling Venice, passing a law that money can't buy knives, which requires the Patusani to earn their cutlery through an annual surfing competition, and sanctioning the first Patusan 500 Invitational Auto Race, where Adam shows off his skills by racing a few of the cast members from the Fast and the Furious. And we cut to black. <laughs> so great. I like the there He-Man sword. Yes, we gotta have the He-Man sword moment. Come on. I love this idea of Quan Su being a spirit. Like, that's, yeah. that's, I would have never thought of that, but it's kind of a fun, really fun idea. Yeah, and I, I just thought, it, I know, like, Ernie had said that when they were developing the movie, they talked about, were they going to make a movie where he teamed with Hulk Hogan, where he teamed with Jackie Chan, you know, because Golden Harvest had done his movies, so I thought, let's work him back in here. Smart. You did your research. Yes, of course. Jeff, you've just seen the film. Did yeah. an idea spring to mind for you? It did. So, briefly, because I don't have a title for mine, but mine, so Surf Ninjas 2 would be sufficient. Mine would take place two years afterwards. So Johnny's about to graduate from high school, and he's trying to figure out how to ask Romay to prom, because since he returned back to the United States, Johnny's gone back into his old habits. He's a slacker, he never does his homework, and Romay went back to but now she's gotten tired of him. Rome is actually because you know she's independent and, and ambitious and everything like that. So she's actually really popular on a fast track for success. So she and Johnny are kind of going in different directions. Adam, meanwhile, his game gear, he's become obsessed with video games. So he keeps playing as many video games as he can because he keeps believing that his site only works through video games, but none of them, like, he keeps, oh, oh, this must have been, no, 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 none of those are actual prophecies. So, at this point, Zatch returns and tells Johnny and Adam that there's a prophecy, that when the sea turns red, the sun shall return to bring the heart back to the people. But Johnny has no interest in any of those sort of things. He's even lost motivation to surf. He's just lost total confidence with Roe losing interest in him and just like, you know, he just kind of mopes around all day. So Iggy figures that he needs to re-inspire Johnny by helping him win Roe back. So he comes with all of these horrible ideas. They do like a whole Cyrano de Bergerac type thing where Iggy is like telling Johnny what to say, but Iggy doesn't know what to say. So all the stuff comes out wrong and it's just making her more confused or more like not liking Johnny. So finally it gets to that kind of that cliche moment where Johnny's just like, no, you just have to be honest, man. You just got to be yourself. So he does that, but that doesn't work either. So Adam starts getting suspicious, thinking that maybe Roe has been replaced. Like she's acting kind of funny finds so he starts investigating and, and just kind of is getting this like you know feeling in the back of his head and at one point as he's kind of like snooping he finds that she is talking to a mysterious figure he observes this a couple of times finally confronts her and uh, at that time like then Iggy and, and Johnny all get involved well and Zatch is there too and we find out that she is actually Colonel Chi's long lost daughter and the mysterious figure turns out to be a horribly disfigured but now fully robotic Colonel Chi. And they have been plotting together, uh, 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 Roe and Colonel Chi have been plotting to keep Johnny disheartened because the prophecy means that his heart is actually con connected 
to Patusan's heart. We find out that the whole nation is kind of sinking into despair and everything like that, as Johnny does as well. So Adam sees that Johnny needs to claim his destiny by defeating Chi once and for all, uh, and that only that will restore Patusan as well. So then there's a final battle now between like a fully robotic Colonel Chi who can actually now like fight. So they have this kung fu versus robot fight and Donnie wins. Then they return to Patusan where he really belongs. And that's where he reclaims his destiny to be with his people. Wait, does Robe grow long adamantium fingernails and attack? What? What's her fate? <laughs> she was evil all along. Yeah, so she, I don't know, she falls into a pool and gets electrocuted or something like that, you know? <laughs> something with her heart. This is all about hearts, right? Ooh, ooh, ro- Robome, Robome. Yeah, Robome. <laughs> could do that. I don't know about fighting, my, like, having her turn out to be the bad guy is bad enough, but actually yeah. having to, like, see her, that seems... One step further than I was willing to go. <laughs> I was like, you know, Surfage is too romantic comedy? <laughs> uh, although, well, that was the point. It was supposed to come off that way and then get you at the end. All right. Well, guys, you know, normally on this show, we vote for our favorites, but I mean, all of these have a place. You know, one one could be a graphic novel. One could be an animated series. One could, you know what I'm saying? Like, they're, they're, they're all good and fantastic. So I don't even think we vote this time around because I so enjoyed every one of these pitches. It was very fun. And yeah, so who knows, Nick, when the time comes, we will be sending the good vibes out for a Surf Ninjas 2. We will be excited to see what four it takes we're just gonna mash these all together yeah (laughs) there's such really cool things in each one so it's like i really enjoyed hearing all that to be fair i did come up with an idea to mash at least a few things like you know your 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 raiden zatch what if we mix him with the spirit of kwan su so cool but but the character of kwan su is this kind of really goofy personality so he's constantly switching between the personality of kwan su and the personality of zatch Ooh, interesting. Really cool. Pretty good acting chore there for Ernie Senior. <laughs> also, since we had a couple of we had a couple of them that had a fully robotic villain, what if it's a villain that if he gets too far away from a Wi-Fi router, he starts buffering? <laughs> there we go. Fantastic. All right. Well, Nick and Noel, again, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Noel, why don't you tell them where they could find you online? Yeah, if you just uh, check out my uh, my main site, nolct.blogspot.com, just kind of links to everything else. Do Schumacast, where we're going through all of Joel Schumacher's films. Doing uh, Greystoke, where we're going through the whole history of Tarzan films. Do Thundar Road, where we're going through all of Thundar the Barbarian. So yeah, I just do a lot of weird odds and ends podcasts. <laughs> and Nick, if people want to send some good vibes your way online, where can they find you? Well, you can find me on Instagram under UndeadGuy. U-N-D-E-A-D-G-U-Y, just like it sounds and i'm also on twitter not as much but it's um the nick cowan t-h-e-n-i-c-c-o-w-a-n very cool and of course uh we invite all of you to check out the archives you can definitely find us uh, on the retro network or on our own individual feed on twitter you can locate us at sqpod We have uh, so much more to come as the year goes on, as we wrap up. We have some fun times here, but we're glad that everybody had a chance to be a part of this. And and again, Nick, uh, this is just really a blast to have you with us. Yeah, thank you guys so much for having me on. This is a a real treat. I, I always love to connect with people who are fans of this odd part of my life. (laughs) <laughs> it's been an absolute pleasure and honor. Thanks so much. <laughs> so until next time, 
Adam, you're driving. Ain't it, bitchin'? We thank you for listening to this episode of Sequel Quest and invite you to continue the fake movie fun on social media. Submit your ideas for future episodes to sequelquestpod at gmail.com or sqpod on Twitter. The films and characters discussed on Sequel Quest are the property of their respective studios and license holders. No copyright infringement is intended. This has been a presentation of the Retro Network.